And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Speaking of your business growing, as it does, you're always trying to hire elite people. Where do you find them? How do you get to them? Is it a good place to find a service to help you find them? There's a whole lot that goes into hiring the best people. I'm going to get into all of that and introduce you to the guest. It's a quick reminder. This is the third episode in our Kansas City-based Inc. 5000 series. As a reminder, that's where Startup Hustle's from. We wanted to give a little bit of love to our hometown, and that'll be going on this whole week of Thanksgiving. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io because hiring software developers is difficult and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has a platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. With me today, I've got Carrie Daniel, and Carrie is the co-founder and CEO of Nextstaff. There is a link for that in the show notes if you want to go learn more about what they do. Carrie's company was all on the Inc. 5000 this year, along with Fullscale and the other participants in this week's show. Uh, 233% growth over the last three years. But more impressively, it was the sixth time his company's been on the list. I don't think that's probably just a good point to say, Carrie, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, well, let's jump right in and get a little bit more about your backstory and Nextstaff's backstory, and then we'll we'll share some of our, our our valuable secrets about hiring elite people. All right, we'll do. Well, let's go. More, okay, more. backstory. Well, I won't go too far back. Um, you know, I was working for a large publicly traded uh, staffing company back in the uh, mid '90s, and uh, I don't know. You know, been there for a while and started to see upper management get replaced by other people started to see my roof or my ceiling kind of capped. So I moved over to a, another company that was local and they had uh, hired me to be kind of a district manager in training. Here's our upward mobility. Here's where we're going. Here's where you fit in. And they ended up selling to another publicly traded company and same story within probably six months, the three people that were ahead of me all were gone and replaced by folks that came in from out of town and I think that was the point where, where I saw, you know, the last two places I've been, my ceiling kind of got taken away. And I thought, you know what, I do not want somebody else being in charge of my future. And so I called a couple of friends that uh, had some finance background. I called my old associate, associate from the staffing firm, and we started our first company in December of 1998. So we did that and uh, had some success with that, built that up relatively quickly, sold it in four years. And, you know, in the early age of 30 something, decided that I didn't have enough money to retire. But uh, all I really knew at that point was staffing. And uh, that's when we decided to launch Next Staff in 2004. And that's a, now a franchise model. And it was really designed to help would-be entrepreneurs that wanted to get in the staffing space that we knew would make a lot of the same mistakes we did. And that's why we went into franchising. 
I think that's a key ingredient with a franchise model. Now you mentioned like there, are, I mean, staffing, let we can be honest, neither one of us invented it for sure. It's right, been around right. for quite a while. There's always been a need for quality help. Um, you know, before we hit record, I kind of alluded to the fact that so many businesses and just people are bad at it. They really are. Yeah. And, and I think that's to be expected. And sometimes it's just rapidly growing businesses that can't really expand fast enough to add people. Now on the franchise level, uh, you guys do have a model that can be used by s- s- future staffing entrepreneurs for a, ver- a wide variety of businesses at like full scale. Like we, we, as I told you before we record, we just do software developers, testers, and leaders and specify with offshore and that, which is a lot different than what you do. Yes. So your franchise model will cover anything from, I mean, probably most of it, right? Yeah. So the, the industry is broken out into a handful of quadrants. We, we nail them down into three verticals, commercial, healthcare, and IT. And we match our franchise owners to the vertical that best complements their background. So in that, as you mentioned, every one of those categories has a hundred different really finite niches that you could specialize yeah. in. So it's really all over the board, but uh, we don't tend to do a lot of offshoring necessarily. Yeah. Most of it's U.S. based. Yeah, and the, you talk about uh, trying to prevent the failures that, I mean, that my business does that too. There's a right. lot of people have had, man, I don't think you have to get too far down the road as a business owner in general before you eventually make a bad hire and maybe develop a strong sense of understanding for the value that expertise in the space brings. I mean, we're here to partially and hopefully talk about hiring elite people. You know, where do you, where do you start with that? It's one of the first topics uh, during training that we go through with our franchise owners is that the speed in which you will grow or not grow can largely depend on that very first hire that they bring in. Because most of our entrepreneurs, they start relatively small. It's the franchise owner doing the sales and they bring on an account manager to do the recruiting and the fulfillment. And so if you get the wrong person in that seat, you could spend three to six months just kind of spinning your wheels versus the right person in that seat. And so then invariably comes the question, which is, okay, well, how do I make sure I get that right person? And we could spend multiple episodes on this, but probably what, what we have found is one of the key ingredients on this is really um, establishing your vision, where you're going, but more importantly, how that new hire fits into that vision. And we give a great example through training and we tell them, so if I'm sitting down with you, I'm a solo entrepreneur. I've just bought a franchise. We haven't even got the sign up on the wall yet, the paint's still wet. And you sit down and I tell you all these things that I want to accomplish and, you know, for my family and I want to do this and I want to do that. And uh, I'm hoping to play golf and retire and do all this. That's not very inspiring to somebody that's an A player. But if you can sit down and clearly articulate your vision, where you're going, but more importantly, where they fit into that vision, that's what we have seen has been the key to bringing on somebody that maybe you might not be able to normally hire or recruit. Maybe you would think somebody comes in and that you think, well, you know, this person's making a great salary. They're working for big companies. Why would they want to work for somebody small like me? It depends, right? If your vision is 
hey, you're getting in on the ground floor. And 10 years from now, I'm going to have 15 offices around the metro area. To do that, I'm going to need key people in certain positions. And here's what those look like. And if you want to be one of those people, um, come work for me. I'll put you on a track and I'm going to show you how to get there. But it's all about where they want to go versus you telling uh, that key employee all your grand goals and the cars you want to buy and all that stuff. I was at TechCrunch a few years ago. This is like pre-pandemic kind of timing. And I went out and we visited some of the companies that we had had on this show. And I was positive when I went out there, like, how do you ever find talent? You're competing against these like tech giants. And all, all of the people I sat down with very quickly corrected me. And they said, they're like, no, I don't have a super difficult time finding people because we have this specific thing or problem we solve. And it's a lot easier for our future employees to get behind some of that than it is to maybe go at Facebook where you feel like you're part of this just massive it's too thing. Big. It's too big. It's too big. And that that is largely there to like show people what my kids ate for dinner. Yeah. So there was a level of, and then that personal interaction, the ground floor thing was a big thing. One of the things that we found when it comes to like the elite people and then the placement. So it's one thing that for us, it's one thing to hire people. So we're not like a normal staffing model. They stay our employees. So they don't go and work for somewhere else. So if they don't turn out, I, I got to pay them anyway, right? Uh, which is a, a different model than, than true staffing. But with that, we're looking for the thing that I found that, that does the best is when they're, that person is just passionate either about what they're doing at work or the problem they're solving, hopefully both. Yeah. So in certain cases, like you look at IT, it's so broad. There's a zillion skills. But what do you really like doing? And that's the, like in that interview and that assessment and that recruiting uh, phase, like that's, and sometimes it's hard to get people to tell you that. Yeah. Cause it's often different than what they've done for the last 10 years. Well, and it's sad to say a lot of people don't know. <clears throat> True. A lot of people, yeah. if, you, if you said, you know, if, if you could draw it up mm-hmm. and you could have a blank slate, yeah. what do you want to do every day of your life? I ask people that a lot just in life. They say, well, what do you do? Well, what, what do you really want to do? And, yeah. the, and the answers are usually never the same. Yeah. Now, I've been fortunate to straighten that out in my own existence because I love business. I love entrepreneurship. I love helping like other people solve problems and all of that. So I wake up. Well, you know, I, I decided I was passionate about making money at one point, too, and I haven't worked a day since. Yeah. And that's a true story I mean, on some levels because that's a scorecard, but it's not the only thing I think fun, that. Like when it comes to elite people that you're going to hire want, they want to win. They want to be around things they're passionate about. And I also think that, you know, we talk about like that. I think you're spot on with this, getting you in the right culture. Cause you, you mentioned kind of like a day one startup with a poorly defined vision about the founder and the owner just wanting to do something else. Yeah. That's hard to buy into. Yeah. But you know, it, it could be easier to buy into if you're like, I'm trying to build the team that I'm going to replace myself with because I'm getting older and this is where I'm at. But, it, but the best aligned vision is we're solving a real life problem here. And I need people that really want to buy into that. Yes. You solve a problem. The money side of the business is usually kind of defines itself. Yeah, people want to know that they're making a difference. Right. They want to know that, that what they're doing every day is just not showing up, checking a box, showing, showing people's dinner on Facebook. Yeah. I, I got that. You know, I, I really did. I was out at that event. We got 
about halfway through our meetings. And I was like, should I still ask this question? I did anyway, but yeah, it was pretty universal. And I really thought it would be hard. I think that too many people that are trying to hire elite folks. Well, first off, let's be realistic. Those people probably are usually aren't out looking for a job. And that's where a staffing company or a company like Fullscale or someone else, in our case, it's just heavy, heavy vetting. We created 48 of our own technical certifications because we didn't find the other stuff that was out there on the internet to be very reliable. Right. Or it asked questions like knowing what PHP stands for does not help you be a PHP developer. Right. That's not what your technical <laughs> assessment should be based on. I just had this whole conversation last week on that exact topic. Right, right. And all right. So hiring elite people is one thing, but trying to keep them around is a whole nother science. And, and our, I have some notes here that 47% of HR teams say employee retention and turnover is their biggest challenge. And, you know, like a lot of people kind of go in the door and out the door in 2022, we embraced a hell of a lot of media that talked about the quote, great resignation. Right. And a lot of people changing jobs. I think the economy's cooled a little bit. We, we, we're going to end 2022 in a, with a different vibe than we started the year with, but I mean, but still the retention and turnover thing is a challenge for a lot of people. What do you think some of the keys are to keep them, keeping your elite people? Well, you know, when we do our research on this, there's a lot of reasons and depending on which survey you look at, that can be all over the board, but you, you will typically find money down farther on the list than, yeah. you, than you think it would be. Right. A lot of people think it's number one reason. Yeah. It, it can be the, it can be a good reason to motivate somebody to move, but it's typically not why they leave. Um, a lot of times they'll leave because of a bad manager or poor leadership, uh, bad culture, not a fit with culture. So, you know, you and I live in a little bit different space in the staffing segment where a lot of our work is done on the forefront. And once we go, we find somebody, they work for a company, let's say for 90 days, 120 days, and that company decides to bring them on and then they fall off a month or two months later. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, our job up front was done inaccurately, but there's something going on. And so we'll work with companies um, HR departments and their leadership teams on the exit interview data that we find. And a lot of times it will typically point to an individual that just is not aligned with everything else going on. And what's funny is when you mention that and you bring in the HR folks and you have that conversation, Hey, we've done exit interviews on the last 10 people that left and you know, John Smith, every single person mentioned John Smith, they know it. And, you know, it's, it's usually not some big surprise, but, you know, John's been there 20 years and they feel some loyalty to him. But the fact is everybody's rowing in the same direction except for him and he's running people off. You have to decide. Do you yeah, want to? With our model, there's, like I mentioned, they stay our employee. So we vet our clients as much as we vet, vet our employees. Yeah. Because if they run off our people, I mean, we fired clients for that. Yeah, we do too. Yeah, just treating people poorly because if they are at full scale, our employees are the biggest asset we have. Yeah. So if you're going to attack the assets, that's not a good thing. That doesn't that doesn't meet a favorable response. We right. do try to correct that though. It's uh, you know I think a lot of people come into the relationship with full scale and they're more con they're concerned about what they're going to get on the other side of of the transaction from us and. 
they quickly evolved to learning that, like you mentioned, like you have the franchise model. So part of our platform is meant to be circular in its communication. And I get a lot of feedbacks. Like I grossly underestimated how value the feedback about our local team would be. Right. Because you look at like productivity and wanting to get stuff done and sometimes things will be slow and we'll delve in and, you know, you look at it and it's because we have someone that's saying, well, I'm asking for feedback and input, but this person takes three days to reply to me. So I've run out of stuff to do. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's, we, we, our model thrives on that, you know, our clients manage and that's a tough thing for us because I have a ton of different cultures to insert people into that can sometimes be challenging. Yeah. And a lot of times we, we threw John Smith under the bus. He's it's that what John is the problem in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, now you talk about the retention thing. Uh, we have definitely found that on the IT side of things that it's the money isn't the big driver. It's the challenge that like software developers don't care as much about money as they do about being engaged and you talk about that kind of passion piece of they want to work with technology that they like, that they feel comfortable with, that they understand is in many cases a unique professional opportunity. So I mentioned like vetting the clients, like people sometimes ask like, oh, I need a website built. That's not what we do. <laughs> like we want a long-term thing that goes over time. And, you know, that's the, yeah, we don't have a problem with churn. Like it's on, like microscopic and some like to the point that earlier this year, it was, now that opened up a little bit, like after the pandemic changed, because we did have some people that moved from the Philippines to other countries. Okay. And they had clearly been waiting for like a visa thing to open. We had like a little flurry of that in the middle of the year. Yeah. It still wasn't much, but, but yeah, but the, the thing with that is also that opportunity that they get that they're involved with. A big thing for us is, making sure that the people that work at our company and when they work with the client relationship, that they have a buy-in. We want them to, so we'll refer to them as being like on the XYZ team. Okay. And that's how they'll identify themselves. We all know that it's full-scale employees, but we want them to have ownership in it like and take pride in what they're doing. I, you talk about why people quit um, feeling like they're a cog in a machine. Right. Like who wants to feel like that? You know, you want to have an identity and be part of something. And well, I think that's a, to do. I think that's a big misconception is that startup entrepreneurs feel as though, well, how am how am I going to hire this top quality person when I'm such a little startup nobody? Yep. And I think you'll find or there's afford to be able to hire them. Yeah, that's another good point. Yeah. Um, but you'll find there's a lot of people out there that have the similar experience that I had, which is you go work for a larger company, you're publicly traded, you're office number 104, and uh, the CEO calls and doesn't know who you are. There's a lot of people that get into that because they think that's what they want. They want to be part of a really large organization and say, yeah, I work for Facebook or I work for Tesla. But then they realize that they're just such a small component, a very small cog in the wheel, and they're looking for more meaning. And they can find that in a startup organization. They can find it in something that's ground floor and be part of building something. Um, but back to the affordability, you could you you might need to get creative on that. When we first started, I can tell you probably I was not the highest paid employee for the first three or four years that we started out, and that was because we knew we had to get quality people in the door. And I didn't even get paid the first couple of years. Well, yeah. 
I mean, that's not uncommon. I used to be a senior manager. I worked my way up to, you know, managing 17 locations for a retail chain. This is like before I was even 30. So that's 20, over 20 years ago. And I remember calling HR once and I was like, Hey, it's Matt DeCourcy. And the lady was like, yeah, but what's your employee, what's your employee number? Yeah. And I just remember thinking, this is the problem. Oh, oh, four, eight, two. Oh, okay. And you got to find a better way. Cause I mean, that's literally like, what's your number? What number are you? What gear are you? Right. What part number are you? It's well, we, like, we, it's, it's not as, it doesn't, I guarantee you I was the only person at the company with the last name DeCourcy because it's a pretty uncommon name, right? You know, so some of that is like, I get why they do that, but I think you need to create, if you want to hire and keep elite people, then be mindful of some stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's a, and, and I will say as the leader of our company, so I, I took a huge level of pride at being able to, I could tell you at any point which client all of our employees worked for. And then we grew really quickly. And also the pandemic separated me, my ability to go over there because everyone wasn't coming to the office. I, I did kind of lose that at some point. And I could still tell you what I would give myself 99% accuracy for what everybody does but maybe not what projects they're in. In some yeah. cases, I definitely know the people that have worked for the same client for years because that's what we're trying to reward. That's the ideal triple win. It's good for our client. It's good for our employee and it's good for our company. And those are the, that's where we try to build incentives and, and I just, I don't know, appreciation around. I was going to say yeah. appreciation yeah. is a big Where did factor. appreciation go, man? I feel like the world's kind of running a little short on that one. It, it feels like everybody gets so busy and you yeah. just get in your routine, you get in your day-to-day whirlwind and you know, a week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, and then you stop and think, <clears throat> you know, when was the last time I stopped and I said, yeah. hey, I appreciate everything you're doing. I appreciate the work you've done. I know you put in this. I, you know, When have you actually stopped and had that discussion? And you mentioned knowing everybody um, kind of where they were on assignment, you know, a question we get on the franchise side is how do you guys compete against you know, some of the larger franchises out there like express, you know, they're a $4 billion company. They have 800 locations. How do you compete against somebody like that? The majority of people that come to us, they want to come to an emerging brand because yeah. they don't want to be office number 804. Yeah. And as they're going through, a lot of them have gone through that process. They've said, well, I've talked to salespeople. I've not talked to any leaders. I've not talked to the owner with you guys. I'm talking to the owner right here. You guys are in training. You're in the discovery. It tells me a lot about your culture. And, you know, that has been one of our big differentiators is that we don't want to have 800 locations. Do you, do you dial that up in the mind of your franchisee? Like, Hey, you're an expert in your space and just know that like, because we get that a lot. They want the consultative approach. They're like, we know we need to do this, but we could really use a couple suggestions or, yeah. or even examples about how it's being done successfully. Yeah. I feel like that's a big part of our growth, you know, and that's, I mean, we're at 733%. Now, in all fairness, we haven't been on the list six times. I told everyone listening, for those of you listening, it's way easier to have 733% growth in year four than it is in year 14. It's true. True. Because you just, it's just math. It's yeah. math. I'm hoping to beat it. We'll see. 
but but yeah, so I have an interesting stat, stat about staff turnover. Before we get into that, I remind you that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Fullscale.io to learn more. So interesting stat. 20, roughly 20% of staff turnover at businesses occur within the first 45 days. It's shitty onboarding. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. But how do you fix that? Well, that's, you know, we, we developed our entire USP around that. So, you know, I won't get into the long details of. Oh, kind you of, have to define USP. We have an acronyms rule on the show. Oh, unique selling proposition. There you go. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I should have defined that when you came in. Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. remember that. Yeah. So we, um, we sold a business back in 2015 that changed what our value proposition was. And so coming from a IO psych background, I kind of took it on myself to say, okay, let, let's do a little bit of research here. Now that we have a chance to kind of reset and I did some research won't bore you with all the details of it, but what we found out was the buyers of staffing wanted something different than the sellers of staffing were providing. And it really boiled down to worker quality. You know, a lot of staffing agencies talk about price or speed or different education, workforce strategy, risk, you know, all kinds of things. But when it came down to it, the buyers are saying, that's all great, but I just want quality people. Yep. And so when we saw this disparity in what the industry was selling versus what the buyers were wanting, I did a year's worth of research. I looked up just about every case study, white paper, research, anything that had been published on how do you, how do you predict quality hires? And what you'll find, there's a lot of research out there. And I took it all, compiled it, put it on a correlation chart. And that's basically the foundation for what we do as our X factor. But what's interesting is you look at, the things that are least likely to predict a quality hire. And it's really what the majority of HR departments do. And a lot of staffing companies do as well, right? They go online, they look at resumes and somebody is weeding through these and putting these in a virtual yes, no pile based on what they're reading. Well, in that resume, you're looking at work history, you're looking at education, you're looking at kind of an inferred age, you can kind of tell that, but that's on a correlation chart some of the least predictive age is one of the least predictive uh, measures for worker quality. And then you get into, okay, I've put these four people in a yes pile. Now I'm going to bring them in and I'm going to interview them, interview them. So I had a debrief call with one of my offices this morning. They had a big direct hire fee that was supposed to come through. The lady declined. And the reason why she declined it was in the interview, all he did was talk about himself. She said that just didn't seem like a place I wanted to work. And so what we have learned is most people have never really been taught how to do an interview. And so when you look at an unstructured interview combined with somebody weeding through resumes, it's about, you know, the four items that you're looking at there are about the four least predictive measures on worker quality. You can go all the way up the list from peer references, uh, job skills, tests, personality profiles, temp to hire, uh, all the way up to work sample tests you know, somewhere in that middle range is a structured interview. And the difference for those that don't know is an unstructured interview. You get four applicants. You're asking four different questions to four different people. 
a structured interview, you're asking the same questions to four different people. So you, you can have an idea of what to gauge. But that's what we built our model on is there are many factors that you can incorporate into your hiring process that are much more predictive than scanning through resumes and then doing an unstructured interview. We're going to help you implement those. And it's kind of like this. It's a discovery call. It's a meeting. We sit down, we talk about what's working, what's not working. Let's, let's do a profile of your top performers. Tell me about the ones that don't perform well. Let's figure out some skills that we can test for. What are some personality traits that you're looking for? And we bake that into a, into a duplicatable process. Yeah, there's, there's three things that while you were mentioning that came to mind that equate to successful long-term, all of it. Uh, first off, skills. Like, if, and if you don't have the technical skills to get the job done, it's, it's over. It's over. And that's what we qualify. That's why we made our own stuff. And that has to exist at a high level, right? Second off is communication. Because in the world of software, especially if you can't communicate, like if the goal and the objective from the stakeholders or whoever it is to the people building it is grossly flawed due to communication. So like, obviously we have people in a foreign country, English language skills are a key. You could be the best coder in the world, but if you don't speak English, I can't hire you. Right. And then the third one is surprised to some people, it's critical thinking. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of countries that aren't the U.S. have kind of a cultural upbringing where saying no to the boss is not encouraged, right. and that's not a good fit for U.S.-based companies. Mm-hmm. So when we hear when we get complaints from people that, well, we tried this before, I get this a lot. We tried this before, and and the team messed it up. Dude, there are 7 billion people on this planet. There are smart people everywhere. You just got to know how to, how to find them and keep them around. Yeah. So to, to exclude 7 billion people because you had one bad experience is, is a little short-sighted. Yes. Run into that a lot. But the critical thinking piece is, and this is what like most software or technology entrepreneurs want to know. It's like, it's, it'd be like, I, I always do this the same comparison. It's like, I give you a blueprint and you're, you're a builder and you look at it and you're like, man, this is going to fall over when I, after I'm done, uh, but he asked me to build it. So I should, yeah, nothing will piss off someone more than that. Right. And you want people to speak up because when you're that one in 30 or in some cases like one in a hundred. So if you are new to the tech space, you have a one in 100 chance of getting a job out of it as an applicant. And most of our developers have seven plus years so there's some expertise there, but that's a huge thing for us that we look into and like try to, and that's, and that's an interview thing. You know, I, and I have a background with, with personality tests and all that stuff. I wrote a whole chapter about it in my book, Balance Me. Okay. Look, as software developers are largely uh, the S and the, they're the type B side. Yeah. So we don't even need to get, yeah. but, but some people really struggle with being able to speak up and be like, Hey, I think there's a problem here. Or there could be, and I think as a business owner, you'd rather know about that than, oh, I thought about that. Or like, I don't know, when things begin to crumble, shake, or sway, you start looking around and you're like, why didn't someone tell me about this? So yeah. that those are, and that third part is hard. Yeah. It is hard, especially, especially with younger people, you know, meaning like newer to the workforce. And then sometimes I said, there's some cultural stigma that comes around it. Like in, in India, they have, they're like, you know, years downstream from the caste system. 
but it was a real thing. It's in the thought process there. And like, I, I shouldn't speak up about this because yeah. I don't want to get, I, but I, we, we get that. So in our onboarding as a new employee at full scale, it's like within the first five minutes that's addressed and addressed and addressed and addressed. And it's like, you got a job here. Congratulations. It's really hard. You're an expert. Know that our clients want your expertise and want you to speak up. Yeah. So we address, get after that right away is, are we perfect on it? No. Well, but, but it's, but it's comes from a support mechanism. Right. And also you should be as a, as a, as someone that's hiring people, I want to encourage all of you to license people, meaning like say, Hey, Carrie, I want your input. I want you to speak up. If you feel better about it, say, look, if you see a, if you see a problem and you have a solution, always bring it up or just say, Hey, there might be something more we need to look at here. That's an appreciative, appreciated thing. Yeah. That, that goes back to culture, right? So if you have, if you have that uh, culture of that in your organization and you live that, then people will be more open to it. We do annual surveys from our staff. They're anonymous um, in every aspect of our business from vision and communication, technology, everything. But it's one of our core values. Entrepreneurship is one of our core values. And it's not just because our support staff work with business owners all day long. We have that same mentality with our staff that says, we want you to think like an entrepreneur. If you have a better way of doing it, if you have a different model, if you think something can be improved, we want to encourage you to speak up. And we have a saying in our office, we could do it if. So anytime somebody comes to you and your knee-jerk reaction is no, we want you to come back with a, well, we could do it if. And that starts that creative process uh, within our office. So we encourage that a lot. I have this thing that, that I made up almost 10 years ago that I call the rule of yes. And it's for all people that work with and around me. If you, if you think there's a 90% chance that I'm going to say yes, I'm okay with you just doing it. I'll deal with the 10% of the time you might be wrong. Yeah. Right. Now you got to put a little bit of boundaries. That doesn't apply to like you being late for the ninth straight day. Cause right. I probably won't say yes. Uh, but with that there's, but that's that licensing of people to make decisions yeah. like, I, I think it's tough for entrepreneurs. That is, I, I think especially at the small level, like yeah. the pressure cooker of like the earliest stage startups and which I want to remind everyone, if you're a four person company and one of the four of you sucks, that means 25% of your company sucks. Yeah. And probably trending downward. Um, but I mean, that's a key thing. And I think that, you know, it's hard. It's hard for entrepreneurs, especially to let go of that on many days. Yeah. But remember, if you don't start letting go of it because you think that you need to be the conduit for everything, you're always going to be the conduit for everything. Right. And a lot of times, well, I, it's faster for me to do it. Okay. Well, then good luck always doing it. Yeah. That's, yeah. I've had, I've had to unwind that ball of rubber bands in my own you, life. You've essentially bought yourself a job. You yeah. Know, you're, yeah. You're a, yeah. It's not a great way to grow. No. It's not a great way to grow. All right. So, now with, with, let's talk a little bit about next staff. And if anyone's interested in jumping into this game, like, what does that look like for most people that are new franchisees for you? Like, what's the process of getting it started? Someone listening is they're going, man, I see an opportunity doing this. It sounds like you've got the platform to help them do it. That's not what we do. So t- tell us more about that. Yeah. So the, the franchise model, as I mentioned, was, was kicked off from, 
myself and my co-founder, James Windmiller, um, you know, we spent the first four years in this industry basically doing everything wrong, figuring out all the things that wouldn't work, figuring out that while we may have known sales and we may have known staffing, we really didn't know the back office components of the business. And after we sold that, we thought, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs out there in the staffing industry or even people outside the staffing industry that are thinking about getting into this. And what if we developed a platform and it wasn't reinventing the wheel, right? There was already franchisors out there, but we saw a gap in what they were offering versus what we thought we could do. And so for us, um, you know, it starts with an application process. We go through, you know, a pretty rigorous process and it really comes down to finding out if this is really something you want to do. If you have the financing to pull it off, if you have the desire to pull it off, is this this something you can be passionate about or is this, I'm hoping to make, you know, good money so I can go off and retire and you're not real passionate about it. So for us, um, it's about a 90 day onboarding process. That includes everything from how to start, you know, how to get your LLC formed all the way to your grand opening. And there from, from that point forward, it's constant weekly training. Uh, we rotate weekly training between sales, operations, finance, kind of owner only type material. But uh, it seems like it's about a 90 day kickoff. And then it's about six months of what we call kind of that baton handoff between that time when you say, okay, it's always good when they go, okay, I think I got it. I'll call you if I need you versus the weekly follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. So controversial question in the world of entrepreneurship, are franchise owners entrepreneurs? Great question. Great question. I do get asked that. You've had people bring that up before, right? Yeah. I I do get asked that a lot. And, you know, some people, I guess, think of entrepreneurs as somebody out there kind of reinventing or something or creating something. And that's a founder, you know, yeah. That, a founder and a franchisee can be a little different, but you're, I think but, you're but, still both. But you know, I look at our business and I would consider myself an entrepreneur. I've, I've opened up probably two, de- two dozen different businesses over 30 years. Um, in this one, I can't really say that I reinvented something. I, I think what we did was take something and make it a little better. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that would be any different than, a franchise owner coming into our model and saying, you know what, I want to do your space and I want to do healthcare. And very often we get a lot of the improvements that come to our overall model come from the office level. We'll see an office and they're just killing it. And we're not proud. We're not like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, you're not doing what we told you to do. We'll call them up and say, Hey, what are you guys doing out in Sacramento? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, what we started doing is we started doing this, this, and this, and that's really turned out to be a better process for us. We have no problem in taking that and then rolling that back out to the offices. So to say that somebody's coming in and kind of tapping into our system really isn't an entrepreneur. I don't know that I'd, I'd say that because most people that we work with, they have a creative element to it. They do something that's a little spin. One of the benefits of working with an emerging brand is the guardrails aren't set in stone. I mean, if you go open a McDonald's franchise, you're pretty much going to be told what to do, what to sell, and you're living in that box. But you're still an entrepreneur because I think, and my answer to that question is absolutely. You're taking a risk. I think that founder can be a different term, like startup founder, like you are, uh, and that's still, I think you can be. Um, it depends. Like if you're, if you're a founder of a company that might want to open 10 subways, 
right? Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's, that's that, but you're not necessarily a founder of a sandwich brand shop. Yeah. But you're still an entrepreneur, man. You gotta come up, you gotta well, find the money you gotta deal with. You gotta figure a lot of stuff out. You gotta do a whole lot of things. And, and really in the end, I think if the risk, if the risk and the reward are headed back to you either way, then that pretty much defines entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I think agree. entrepreneurship exists on levels all the way down to eight-year-old with lemonade stand. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's yeah. I think entrepreneurship's as as broad as you can be. Um, I we we've had debate about this and in, in the startup hustle chat on Facebook and for the many people in that you know people have lots of different opinions, but. Yeah, I think entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur and being a founder can be different things. Um, I think when people think of a true startup, that's a from scratch kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, but I think, you know, if you're going into a, like for us, you know, we have 35 locations. So if you decide you're going to open a next staff in Austin, you're not going to go down into Austin, open your office, everybody go, oh, look, it's a next staff. Yeah, I've heard of you guys. Yeah, send me 30 people. You're starting out pretty much from scratch, except you have, you know, our knowledge and our cheat sheets and some of our methodology to help shorten your learning curve. But that's what I love about the franchise model though. Like if if you don't want to go out there and try to figure it out from scratch, go for it. But I mean, that's what you get with it. So the, the most granular definition is a true startup doesn't come with an owner's manual. A franchise comes with an owner's manual, right. at least a good one does, yeah, or or a semblance of one. But and that's the key ingredient is is there's that, but there's a lot to be said about being able to call someone and ask them that question. If you want to grind through the muck and the mire yeah. of trying to figure it out yourself, and you think that there's some glory in that, mm-hmm. I think you're probably fine. At the end of the day, you're a little bit you're a little bit disappointed. Yeah. Well, how many entrepreneurs do you know that went into a business? that just like me, right? I went into the staffing business because that's where I had worked. I had worked for a couple different companies. I found some things I liked. I found a lot that I didn't like, and I thought I could create something a little better. No different than if you did, if you were doing auto body work for, um, you know, Mako for 10 years and decided to strike out on your own. It's not like your mind is blank and you're just starting from scratch. You're taking probably some of the basics and you're taking it and you're modifying it to what you believe is a better Right. Better process, a better. Yeah, I think you were going to ask what percentage of, of entrepreneurs have familiarity. I think let's rephrase that. What percentage of successful entrepreneurs? It's it's high, like overwhelming, yeah. have familiarity with the space that they're getting into. The key ingredient is that they ha- they have identified a problem we're solving. Exactly. And and you know and and that exists on a ton of different levels. Now look, you don't. It doesn't have to be like. You don't have to be the first person because I, I, I have often been caught saying, are there any original ideas left? Because they're few and far between. It's America, man. You got to do it better, faster, cheaper. And yeah. then if you can get two of those three in, you, you stand a chance. Right. If you can only do one of those three, you're probably not going to make it. If you can get all three done, you got a chance of doing something that's bigger than you. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said there. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think overwhelmingly, when I, and as you mentioned that, I tried to go through this like rapid fire review of like the clients, past clients, like whatever. That's something we, we look at a little bit when we're, you know, we either invest in a company or take them on as a client, is, especially if they're early stage. Like if you tell me that you're jumping into 
the fintech and you have no background in any of that. Because here's the thing is like, it's not just about your ability to solve the problem. It might be about your ability to gain any, any amount of traction from investors. Right. Because if you're 25 and you're ready to be this like big fintech startup person and you have an idea that other people are doing, I'm going to kind of wonder like, what's your level of expertise or anything around that? And that's, that can, that can be tough. And, you know, there's ways to get through that. There's ways to get through that. And that, but it's another thing to, to, uh, to climb over. Now, as we run out of time on today's episode, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Full Scale. We have the people, the platform, and the process to help you build a highly effective and highly affordable, I hate the word cheap, because it's like it's affordability is, is defined by so many different things, but pre-vetted, highly experienced people, people platform process. You guys have the same thing. I want to encourage anybody that you know, there's staffing is, is uh, there, there's a lot of meat on that bone, man. Talking about millions of people looking for jobs at millions of companies all around. Uh, the forecast yeah. came out a couple of weeks ago, 212 billion. Is the size of the yeah. industry in 2022 yeah. is the projection 212 billion. It's a good time to get into a business like this and get adoption too, because with the, with the market conditions of stuff and you know VC funding forced to be a little more um, specific. I'll tell you what they've been reaching out to me. The people that didn't want to talk to us three years ago suddenly love us. I get three calls is, a week, which is funny. Three calls a week. Us being on lists like Inc. 5000 probably accelerates some of that. And, you know, you guys have made some other, you've been on, had other awards, you know, franchise business reviews, got you on their culture 100 list and a lot of other stuff. Sorry, I didn't mention that until now. But, you know, there's a a lot to be said. You know, as we round out this episode, you know, there's a, I mean, if you had to share one quick statement about hiring elite people like what's your best advice to those that are hiring always recruiting sometimes hiring okay so your your job as an entrepreneur the recruiting never stops i am always looking for that next a player i may not have a position available for him right this moment but i guarantee you if as I'm always recruiting, sometimes hiring, I find that person, I think, oh, wow, this, yep. this person is a stud. This is somebody we need. You, you find a spot for them. And you know what? If, if you have 10 full-time employees, maybe this becomes your number one and number 10 has got to go. But uh, always recruiting, sometimes hiring. Yeah, for my, for my outro here, I wanted to share some of the qualities that we look for that aren't, uh, that are, um, that aren't necessarily like related to a technical skill. So we look for people that have relevant experience and also software development experience, communication, attitude, and likability. Cause someone with a good attitude is just better to work with. Yeah. It's easier when you like um, critical thinking. we talked about that a lot earlier. Problem solving is a big one. Like how do people go about it? Some people fold under the pressure leadership, versatility, passion, and then an internal tag of marketability. Like people that are good and willing to do a lot of different things and jobs for what we do are easier to place with clients in a useful way. I also mentioned like, uh, you know, that consultative thing. Businesses need different kinds of help at different points of their timeline. 
Yeah. So like an early stage company is better to be buying Swiss army knives than swords because there's so many different things in these early stage companies, especially with technology. If you can only afford one or two people, you need them to do a number of different things, not necessarily be like, this is the one thing that I do because maybe you can't afford specialists at that point. Most people can't, but uh, this was a very interesting conversation. Once again with me today, Carrie Daniel of Next Staff. There are links in the show notes. Go check out what they do and maybe buy yourself a franchise. See you down the road. Thank you. Appreciate it. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.